HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for Italian ingredients and pantry staples. Learn more at gustiamo.com. This week's episode of Meat in 3 is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects. Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And speaking of journeys, we're going to be talking about a journey today. It's a brand new show on Heritage Radio, and I thought what a great opportunity to introduce you to the host of the show and the topic of the show. The host of the show is Peter Reinhardt. Now, Peter Reinhardt is if if anyone has done any studies of food history, culinary history, particularly bread, or is interested in artisan bread, you know the name Peter Reinhardt. I've known Peter's name for 20 or 30 years. I think we met at a, a conference on, on different occasions. So imagine my surprise when I hear from the heads of the network that we have a new show starting called... Peter Reinhardt on Pizza Quest. Pizza Quest? Is this the same Peter Reinhardt I know? Well, hey, it's bread, it's dough, it's yeast, and yes, it's Peter Reinhardt. So I thought, what a what a great time to um, to introduce you to him and for me to learn a little bit more about him and about the show. Now, Peter. He's widely acknowledged as one of the world's leading authorities on bread. I mean, this is big, folks, okay? (laughs) He's a baker, an educator, a writer. In fact, he's the author of 13 books, including The Bread Baker's Apprentice, which won the 2002 James Beard Cookbook of the Year Award, as well as the International Gourmand Award as the best baking book in the world. And a couple of his other books also won James Beard Awards. Some titles that you might recognize are 
The Bread Revolution, Crust and Crumb, American Pie, My Search for the Perfect Pizza. Huh, that one struck a chord because Peter, as he says, has been on a lifelong search for the perfect pizza. And this search has led him down an interesting path, including 20 years in a semi-monastic Christian community, restaurant and bakery owner, and for the past 25 years, a faculty member at Johnson Wales University, where he teaches courses on artisanal bread baking, as well as food media and food media and food culture. Peter's taught bread and pizza classes. Now, I didn't realize this, that that until recently on this um, announcement of the show in April, but he's taught classes on pizza as well. Well, I guess it stands to figure, right? Bread, pizza. And um, he has an instructional video series called Craftsy on craftsy.com. And he hosts a video web series called Pizza Quest, which is also the name of his podcast here on Heritage Radio Network. And the catchphrase to the show is a journey of self-discovery through pizza. Well, this is all very interesting sounding, and I can't wait to find out more. So I want to introduce you right now to Peter Reinhardt. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Linda. Great to be with you. You know, you I've you have said in, in many of your interviews and a lot of your writings that for you, bread is a metaphor for life. So I guess this journey of self-discovery through pizza is kind of a, a follow-up, right? Yeah, there's a pretty strong connection between bread and pizza. I, I think of pizza <laughs> basically as a as sort of an offshoot of bread uh, because how I define pizza basically in a very broad term is dough with something on it. Right. And uh, and if you put if you have dough with something in it, then we call that a sandwich. But it all requires bread. And and I think that uh, you know when I had finished the bread baker's apprentice, which was uh, almost twenty years ago. Um, I was thinking, do I have anything left to say about bread? Well, it turns out I did, but I didn't know it at the time. So I thought, well, what else do I love to uh, to eat? And what do I know about? And what can I talk about? Because for me, you know, even bread is just an excuse to be able to write. And because writing has always been my first love, even before baking. Uh, so uh, I thought, what do I want to write about? And I thought, okay, pizza. It's a next logical extension. And the, the question that fascinated me about pizza was, um, what is it that separates good pizza, of which 99% of the pizza out there is good, from great pizza, of which there was at that time, uh, 15 years ago, only a few pizzerias in America that you could say were destination worthy, that were iconic? And what were they doing that was differentiating them from all the other ones that were just doing good pizza? And that that became the reason to kind of branch over into pizza. Well, that's and what you mentioned is very interesting because I was talking to a friend not long ago, and when we were talking about our childhood and and you know where we grew up, and who had a pizzeria, who had a pizza shop? I mean, pizza was very well in terms of of you know the food world. Pizza was a and, and being a restaurant, pizza is a very new thing. 
uh, there weren't pizzerias in the right. early forties. I mean, that was. I, can you can you date when pizzas really first sprung up in towns across America? Well, I think in the United States, you could say maybe right around the turn of the twentieth century, like Lombardi's in New York City. But it was really in cities like New York and maybe New Haven and uh, a few others that had strong Italian you know neighborhoods uh, where pizza took an early foothold. But really, to the mainstream American. The concept of a pizzeria was definitely post-World War II, a lot of it stemming from the fact that Americans who came back, soldiers who came back from the war, who had spent time in Italy, came back very excited about this this thing they had discovered called pizza. And uh, it started, you know, a growing trend that eventually in the early 1960s led to the the uh, pizza huts and the and the Shakey's Pizza and the uh, uh, and eventually Domino's and a few major players uh, that uh, I guess you could call those the chain pizzerias and the franchise concepts. And if you look at t- where we are today now, uh, sixty years after that, uh, about half the pizza that is bought to be eaten as opposed to frozen pizza that's the right. restaurant pizza uh, about half of that pizza is produced by probably five major chains Papa John's mm. and Pizza Hut and Domino's that they dominate and the other 50% is spread out among the thousands and thousands of independent pizza operators so I say thousands and thousands because that itself is is an amazing paradigm shift from the early 60s when you were lucky if you had a couple you know, neighborhood pizzerias within striking distance of where you lived, uh, unless you lived in a major city. So it has been a growing evolution of, you know, of a concept that had to happen. It was an idea whose time was meant to be because, let's face it, everybody loves pizza. There's pro- it's probably the most perfect food there is from a standpoint of, you know, satisfaction, delivering satisfaction, or what we teach our culinary students, delivering flavor. Pizza is the perfect flavor delivery system. There's just something about dough with something on it that works. And even when it's executed at just an average, you know, ho, you know, humdrum level, it still delivers flavor and it's still beloved. And the, the other proof of that is, is look how many frozen pizzas are sold every day, literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands per day. And, the, you know, no one will claim that those are destination pizzas, but they're, they're good enough. Because yeah. pizza works, whether it's good or whether it's excellent. Right. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Somebody once, you said that it's um, the perfect delivery food. And someone also once said it's it's probably as if you consider it a fast food, um, that it's also the healthiest fast food. In some ways, yeah. I mean, like until that. we I mean, started to, uh, you know, turn the kitchen sink pizzas became a thing, you know, with everything on it. (laughs) But in conception, yes, you know, yeah, yeah, it has the protein, it has vegetable, you know, and so it makes sense. I think in one culture, pizza is commonly eaten for breakfast. Now, I know I've eaten cold pizza for breakfast before, but it's not who hasn't, usually. Yeah. yeah, right. Who hasn't? The official, not, the official breakfast food of college students. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, too, because um, it becoming so popular that, you know, everyone loves pizza. Kids, little kids used to grow up and what was their favorite food they wanted? It was a hot dog of all things. You know, yeah. everyone wanted a hot dog. And that, that was, was me. That was right. me. It was the quick and easy. <laughs> and for a mother, you know, of kids, it was the quick and easy, quick and dirty, you know, right. meal. Say, okay, here's a hot dog. Now it's it's pizza. 
I don't know. I don't know what happened to hot dogs, but pizza. Well, they're coming back. Me play some. They're, yeah, hot okay. dogs never went away, and they are coming back. Anything that was good back then is going to come back because it's all—they're all being reinvented. The whole food world has been reinvented. But I, so I still would—I would still go on a journey for a good hot dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, you can go back to one of my shows. I think I did that one too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and and so I then I got to thinking about well what your background and how did you, you say it's been, um, you know, a lifelong journey um, on self-discovery through pizza. But I mean, you really were in the whole bread phase for so many years. What caused you to make this shift to pizza? Well, I, of course, I still have not totally shifted out because I still teach bread baking uh, across yeah, the course. country and at Johnson Wales. So it's still sort of the anchor of it all. And because and, and, and so just sort of to complete the circle on this pizza thing is that is that in my search for what differentiated good pizza from great pizza or I would call memorable pizza, uh, it really does come down to the crust. And everyone I talk to, you know, there's pretty much consensus. There are going to be a few people that will say, no, it's all about the sauce or it's all about the cheese. But most people who, who are passionate about pizza will say, you know, that what makes for a great pizza is that it has to have a great crust, which brings us back to bread. And so um, I and that's why when I started writing about um, about pizza after doing these bread books was it was an easy leap over because I had spent, you know, a number of years, 20 years um articulating what it is about bread that can differentiate good bread from great bread. And again, there's a, it's the same principle supply. So, uh, but I stumbled into bread as it wasn't sort of my plan to become a baker. Uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, my goal was actually to be a writer and a filmmaker. I, I, I went to college uh, to study broadcasting and film. And my goal was to become a writer and director of films. And just as I was about to kind of launch into a career or a career search for that, um, I because I did have some opportunities to get into, you know, kind of at the entry level of filmmaking, be a production assistant on some major films and all. Um, I I kind of well, first, I, I found some people that were kind of in the process of opening a an organic vegetarian restaurant in Boston where I was at Boston University and it was kind of like this hippie hippie dippy restaurant in 1970 and they were gathering and uh, I, I I was on kind of a, a personal spiritual quest at the time and so were they and we kind of came together and I started hanging out with them and and I, at the same time I realized I had to make a choice do I want to take this job as a production assistant on a major film or do I want to do this which was kind of right in front of me and, and look like fun but I didn't know where it was going to lead because I really didn't know how to cook at that point and the thought dawned to me that even though I felt like I had the skills to be a writer and a director and to make films, I really didn't know what I had to write about. What did I have to say? What was, what, what did I stand for? Who am I? So the big question started like bubbling to the surface and here was an opportunity to kind of explore that further. So I actually put my film ambitions on hold and threw my lot in with these, with this ragtag group of hippies. And we opened this, this uh, very early version of a, a, a California style vegetarian organic restaurant in the heart of Boston. And I ended up learning how to cook there and I fell okay. in love with it. And I learned well, about bread great. there. And I you know, we met some bakers who were making breads like I had never had growing up and it just started planting seeds and, and my spiritual kind of uh, journey took precedence over my career journey, and I ended up becoming a member of a of a Christian 
community. We could call it maybe a, you could say it's a, a brotherhood, or but it was really a brother and sisterhood because we had men and women, and it was independent of any other path. But it, it brought together a lot of the things I had been studying about Eastern religions. It was very, even though it was Christian based, it was very similar to uh, all, all the, the the Sufi things that were going on, and the Hindu things, and the, mm-hmm. the yogi things, and the meditation, everything that was happening back in the early seventies. Uh, and all the people who were on these various paths would come into our restaurant because we were the place, the gathering place for that. So it, it was a, a great three-year uh, sojourn for me. And in the course of that, I met this group that was that brought all of these kind of spiritual ideas from different religions together under a Christian umbrella. And I was raised Jewish, so it was the last place I expected to to end up. But it it spoke to me. It just it just called to me. And eventually, I ended up becoming a a member, I threw again threw my lot in. I just uh, you know abandoned myself to divine providence and threw my lot in with this group, and uh, it it took me to a whole other place. Meanwhile, I had developed these cooking skills, so I always ended up in the kitchen. I always ended up cooking, and eventually, I was living in San Francisco, where our headquarters was, and I was the cook there. And I started making bread because San Francisco is such a great bread city. And now we're talking about the 1970s. Um, and I and I didn't have to make bread because you could get great bread in San Francisco at that time. But I decided to to make it just because it was interesting, and that opened up a whole other path. And so one little like escalator step to the next led me along, and uh, suddenly uh, I was I got married. My wife was also a member of this community. We she was also a good cook. We opened up a little restaurant and a cafe and a bakery to create jobs for the neighborhood where we were living at that time. It was, we had moved up to uh, Sonoma County and I was making bread and mm-hmm. the bread thing just kept getting bigger and bigger. And uh, before I knew it, I kind of woke up one morning. I said, I finally know what I have to write about. Cause mm-hmm. I had had this, it was one of those aha moments where I realized that bread was the perfect metaphor of everything that I had been striving for and, and studying and the, all the theology and the, 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 the research and the, you know, all that, the philosophy, you name it, it all came together and bread became the perfect symbol for that. And so my first book was called Brother, our bakery was called Brother Juniper's Bakery. I called Brother Juniper's Bread Book, Slow Rise as Method and Metaphor. And so this notion of, of the best bread is made by slow fermentation, slow rising bread makes better bread than fast rising bread. That was the the, the foundation upon which all my other books have followed. And that was 30 mm. some years ago. And, yeah. you know, it just opened up a whole path for me. And so I was able to kind of full, bring it full circle and even start making videos and getting back into, you know, making, you know, doing things that I had trained for in college. So, well, uh, I, I have. Yeah, and I have a couple. I thought about that as I was, um, you know, reading all about your background and watching some of your other interviews, and you've given several TED talks, and um, and then hosting the the symposium on uh, the future of bread, on bread, on pizza making. But bread itself, if we can, you know, like take a few steps back, <laughs> big steps back. Yeah. I mean, bread it all fits because bread has is very much a part of you know, the background of, 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 um, religious celebrations and, um, and bread is, is what nurtured people. I mean, but 
bread's been made for thousands and thousands right. of years. Right. So um, that, I mean, it all kind of fits together that you would use that, you know, the bread as a, a metaphor for life. And then it, it helped you along on your journey. And, and I was really just the beginning bread baker at the time I wrote the book. I had an instinct for it and, in, you know, and could do it without being trained. But at the same time, uh, the the whole artisan bread movement was beginning, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Again, it was For all sure. you know, it was all kismet, so to speak. But um, uh, I began to take you know study with these bread masters that had come over from Europe to teach us, and uh, as many bakers were doing, and it, and and all the pieces started to fall into place. But the real this other aspect of uh, bread being an ancient food uh, in interviews after my first book came out. I hadn't really thought through all the implications of this foundational premise of slow rise being better than fast rise. Um, Interestingly enough, at about the exact same time, the slow food movement started totally independent of my thinking. Of course, I got involved in that. But but I got interviewed a lot uh, and would always be asked the question, what is it about bread? That makes it so special. That makes it. That makes people feel so connected to it and so passionate about it. And, and they, they'd rather give up meat than give up bread, or they'd rather give up, you know, almost anything. Or if they can't eat bread because they're gluten intolerant, it's it, it makes them crazy, you know, because they crave bread. So mm-hmm. what is it that about bread that that is so compelling to us? And being asked that question forced me to go much deeper into my thinking about it. And that's when I began to sort of work out a lot of my my ideas, my theories and hypotheses that I spoke about in my TED talk, uh, you know, uh, about sort of the meaning of bread and, and how bread ultimately, and why is, in fact, why is it that bread is at the center of every religion and every spiritual and cultural festival and, and celebration there's always a bread if you if you go to any festival in, in Italy uh, where every day there's a festival dedicated to some you know Christian saint um, there's always a bread associated with that festival and that's true in the Jewish faith it's true in the Islamic faith there's always bread and so uh, that tracing back and kind of following the breadcrumbs of those questions <laughs> took me into a much deeper place and made me feel, much more connected to, you know, and, 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 and in a sense confirmed this feeling of, I finally have something to, to write about. I can write about this for the rest of my life because it's a fathomless subject. All right. Well, and you did a little deep diving into the etymology of religion the, and, yeah. and, and the bread. Um, it's a great story. If you, could you tell us about that, about the connectedness and, and yeah. And uh, so, so that was a big, Part of it for me, because you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not evangelical by nature. I don't, my goal is not to try to, you know, win people over to my view of, you know, how how religion works or how Christianity works or you know, or or any of that. Uh, in fact, I, I, I would rather talk about bread than talk about uh, theology and, and and religion. So, uh, but I was somewhere. I stumbled upon something, either a talk or something I read, where I saw that the that the etymology of the word religion comes from Latin, religio, and the word religio does has, has nothing to do with God. Religio means to be connected to. It's an active word. It's to, it's, a, it's about connection. And, and, and again, another light went off for me, and I realized that the whole point of religion is to connect us to something bigger than ourselves, a, a greater purpose, a greater sense of, of meaning. And, you know, even, you know, the, uh, the 12-step programs are all based on this idea of the, you know, kind of 
surrendering to something that's greater than ourselves. So that's another way of connection. So I started to again think about what is the, the our goal? What is the, the what's driving people in their life? What are we searching for? And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that what everyone is searching for, whether they are conscious of it or not, is a meaningful life in which we are connected to something beyond ourselves. And that can be a horizontal connection to other people, to community, or it can be a vertical connection to some higher power. Um, and in fact, it's usually a combination of both. Um, so, And then it can be that round loaf that we break yeah, bread and together. It can be, yeah, and we and, break the bread together and we're yes. very connected. Yeah. And, and, I, you and, know, and, and it's I, all about this journey that we're all on that is a constant reinvention of ourselves, a journey I call it a journey of transformation in which we're really constantly changing from one thing into something else. Yeah. And bread is the ultimate symbol of transformation. I mean, either consciously or unconsciously, you know, we all kind of go through this this journey of self-discovery in some way or another. And, and But, you know, through bread, I think, why not? You know, <laughs> you, you really hit on something through pizza. Why not? You know, make it something that's enjoyable at yeah, the same right. time. Because sometimes it's not, sometimes it's painful and it's not always enjoyable. But through pizza... Oh, my goodness. A painless quest. Yeah. <laughs> a painless, right. joyful quest, yes. You got it. You got it. <laughs> so um, you know, it, it's it's nice how it works that way. And, of course, you don't have to be, quote, religious or spiritual or anything to enjoy bread and pizza. And you don't have to buy into any of these sort of connections that I've made. It's just that for me, then with my, you know, with my um, ministry training and, and theological training and everything else, I also am always kind of asking, you know, those other questions. And um, in the end, the thing that kind of helped me to understand why bread itself has emerged, even in the food world, as sort of the preeminent f- symbol uh, and the thing that, that that sort of drives the whole engine of, of why people are in love with food is I, I, I um, uh, read about in the in the, around the time of the scholastics, which is around uh, uh, maybe a th- a thousand AD, eleven hundred AD, the day mm-hmm. in the days of Thomas Aquinas and and Dante. Dante articulated something that he said that all things could be understood on four levels, and the and and the first level is literal, uh, like bread as bread that we eat. But then there's other deeper levels of meaning of bread, and and the second level down he said was metaphorical or poetic, and the mm-hmm. third level down was philosophical and ethical. Um, where you start to, you know, bread as sort of a foundation for like the French Revolution, even, you know, you could just just making those connections. And then the deeper level, the deepest level of all, he called the mystical level or the anagogical level. And that's the one you can't really talk about. Because as soon as you try to talk about it, you 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 lose it. It's just always out of out of reach. But there's that deepest level that you know, we kind of have this itch deeper inside of us. What's that deepest level that we can't say? It's like the cat in cats. They'll say, you know, every cat has three names, but the name the one name that we'll never know is the the cat's real name. You know, and so <laughs> so that's the deepest level. So I started to apply that, you know, and realize that bread is the most transparent of all the foods that kind of allow you to see into these levels because it, it's, you know, the symbolism just works. And, and, right. and, and so that's, that just gave me again, more, more ammunition, more, more, you know, uh, grist for the mill to be able to talk about bread. Yeah. Well, one more bread question before we move on to um, pizza, which we'll do after the break. <laughs> um, you uh, really focused on a particular 
bread. And I want I want you to tell us about that because yeah. I want to hear more about it. The Struan bread. My favorite bread of all time. Yeah. The when I started the the cafe and bakery with my wife, Susan, um, I had been working on a bread for a couple of years. This is before we ever thought of even opening a restaurant. We were just living in a community of people that uh, and one of the things that we were studying in our in our work there, because it was a, a community based on uh, ministry and teaching was um, uh, the role of festivals. In, in our lives and, you know, in, in whether it's a Christian festival, a Jewish festival, an Islamic festival, Hindu festivals, the festivals are a big uh, important part of how knowledge is transmitted from generation to generation. And one of the ways that that knowledge is transmitted is not just through written teachings and scripture and this and that, but through music and dance and, and just the, the act of celebration. It's a very powerful, profound concept. And, uh, in, so we started studying some important festivals, some that maybe were lesser known, and one was called Michaelmas or Michaelmas, as they would say in in the you know in the Celtic lands. Mm-hmm. And Michaelmas was a, at one time a very important festival, almost uh, at well maybe at the same level as Christmas and Easter. Uh, they were like the, the the three most important festivals of the year, and and Michaelmas is the harvest festival, and in, in the Jewish faith you would say Sukkos would be the. Uh, uh, I'm Ashkenazi, so it's Sukkot, and if I was, I think the other pronunciation is Sukkot, but it's um, uh, it's a celebration of the harvest. Well, the Christian version of that is is the Feast of Saint Michael the Archangel, which uh, in which um, the foods are dedicated to the harvest is dedicated to children and the perpetuation of life, and um, it turns out that every country uh, within the Christian world had different festivals to ways to celebrate that festival, and one out of uh, Scotland. Was called was a bread that they would make called Struan, S T R U A N Struan, Struan Mikiel, the Struan of Michael, and it was a, basically a harvest bread, a gathering of whatever was ready to be harvested on September 29th, the day of the harvest, and the fathers and sons would go out into the field and gather what whatever was ready. They bring it home. the The, the wives and daughters would uh, stay up all night turning that into bread, um, and uh, of course, there were a lot of um, uh, customs around that. For instance, you know, you had to be really vigilant because if your bread fell while you were raising it, uh, that would portend a, a year of bad fortune for you. You know, so there's a lot of pressure on everybody. The women had more pressure because they had to make the bread. The men just had to go out, harvest, and go to sleep. But um, the next day, they would make the take these loaves of bread that they had made and march through the towns and pass out the loaves to poor to the poor. But also the breads would be consecrated at an early morning mass and dedicated to loved ones who had passed away during the previous year. So I thought that was a really beautiful custom. And so I decided to make my own version of struin. But there was no recipe. There's no, but the recipes were, you know, never written down. Uh, there was a, a folklorist named Alexander Carmichael who had gathered some material. And one was a something called the blessing of the struin, in which they, they talk about all these ingredients that none of which I even had ever heard of before, kale peach and wild woad and Carl Dotties and all that. But essentially the, the spirit of that of that blessing of the struin was that you gather whatever's ready to be harvested and put it together and, and, and bring them together to make a loaf. Later on, I found out that the word struin, uh, aside from being the name of a clan in, in Scotland, it actually means the convergence of streams. So unlike like a, a simple French bread of, flour, water, salt, and yeast, this is a bread that could have lots of ingredients. And so eventually I came up with a version that has 12 ingredients, 
uh, five different grains and then some honey and some sugars and, uh, of course, yeast and salt and and uh, and seeds. And I, over a number of years, I perfected that recipe. And and again, as as fate would have it, the the recipe came together just at the time that my wife and I had decided to open our cafe. So we decided to build the cafe around that bread. And a number of other dishes that both of us have become good at making. In her case, it was anything with chocolate, and and she's really good at salad dressings and soups. And my big thing was was chili and gumbo and barbecue. And so we put all that together to make our cafe. And we thought we'll see what happens when we do it. It was a tiny little place, um, and uh, we didn't ever expect to make any money there. But we wanted to create some some jobs for high school kids in the, who lived in the area. And um, lo and behold, the the bread kind of took off. And took on, took on a life of its own to where other chefs in the area wanted to, wanted us to make bread for them. They really wanted this strewn bread. Um, uh, the final version of that, uh, what made it such a great bread, ultimately is because you can the, the you can talk about and rhapsodize about stuff forever, but if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter. Uh, what made it such a great bread was that it makes, in my opinion, the best toast of any bread I've ever had. And you put that <laughs> in the you put, put a slice in the toaster, put some butter and jam on it. You don't need anything else. And so that's why I love it so much. And I feel so connected to that bread, going back to our concept of connectedness, yeah, yeah. that I consider that bread, if bread is a metaphor, then that particular bread is the metaphor of me. So when people say, who are you? I say, just look at this. Strewn bread is my story right there. <laughs> and it's interesting where we've come as a as a culture now. I mean, you know, all the, well, and due to four, with COVID, with everyone staying at home and everyone baking again so much or learning to bake, or many people, you know, going back to making their own sourdough starters, but foraging also. So this mm-hmm. strewn bread makes me think of the people going out and foraging and finding, you know, as you say, what's in harvest at that time. And, that's right. That's and, right. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. And almost anything um, can work in bread. That's for sure. Right. And, and I thought of another story about um, the, those pagans, the Romans, but the early Romans. I mean, they'd have these banquets and, you know, bread would always be used as a trencher for the Uh meals. And it would absorb, you know, you'd take a nice slice of the meat or whatever was cooked and serve it on this this big round of bread and absorb all the flavors, right? There it is, the first pizza. Yeah, (laughs) you've got it, you've got it. But more than that, more than that, you know, and then, of course, people would nibble at that. But at the end of the meal... They would go around and collect. They, you know, a servant would go around and collect the the uneaten portions of those trenchers, or the trencher themselves, because you know, if you were dainty, it wasn't polite to eat your trencher. Uh-huh. <laughs> and put them in a basket and take them out and pass them out as alms. They were the first alms for oh, that's interesting. the poor yeah. who were standing. Yeah, and the, so all these stories are just you know everything's just you know bubbling up of connect- I would have probably not fit in with those. I wouldn't have fit in with the Romans because I would have eaten my trencher. <laughs> I, I, I would. Too. I would I say, know. wait a minute, this is the best part. What are you doing? It's all you the know? juices in there. That's <laughs> yeah. right. And and you have it. It was the first pizza, and we're going to talk about pizza as soon as we come back from a short break. So stay with us. Okay, great. This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Gustiamo's mission is to improve the quality of Italian food in the States. They independently import the best and most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers wonderful people dedicated to their land and their traditions. When you're searching for quality Italian pasta, San Marzano tomatoes, and real extra virgin olive oil, Gustiamo has them all. 
Shop their vinegars, coffees, sweets, and so much more. From northern hilltop hazelnut farmers in Piemonte to southern sea salt millers off the coast of Sicily, Gustiamo works exclusively with small family food companies in Italy. When you shop with Gustiamo, you'll know that your ingredients are authentically Italian and of the highest quality. For our listeners, Gustiamo is offering a 10% discount on your online order with Gusti code HRN. Learn more at gustiamo.com. That's G U S T I A M O.com. Okay, we're back, and I am talking with Peter Reinhardt, a new host of Pizza Quest, a journey of self discovery through pizza, right here on Heritage Radio Network. And Peter, um, we, there's so much to talk about, but I think I really have to talk about your new show, Pizza Quest. You, I mean, on this show, you you interview, and you have through your website as well too, some of the best and well or most well known pizza makers around. Um, Tell me, are you just also going to eat some of the best pizza around, or is this all about talking? <laughs> I want to come. Well, to, I want to come to a taping if you're eating. It's, it's hard to, uh, you know. We do. We we I, I, we all eat a lot of pizza, uh, and during the this this uh, you know sort of pandemic lockdown period, uh, I wasn't able to go out on the road with my with my camera crew to film. You know the footage on our website. We have some great videos of me visiting uh, some of these great pizza makers uh, and eating pizza with them and learning all their their, their tricks and tips and diving into their passion. But um, we couldn't get it back on the field, so I started doing these interviews with with people. I'll call them pizza luminaries. The and and it wasn't just pizza luminaries. It was people who were the. Uh, uh, the artisans surrounding pizza, the, the cheese makers, the tomato growers, um, you know, the farmers, the, mm-hmm. everybody plays a part in this. And because they all, they all share the same passion, the same passion I have in my quest for the perfect pizza. They each have uh, their own quest, which is, you know, to, to do the best version, a destination worthy version of whatever it is that they're working on. And so that's what we want to celebrate. We celebrate uh, artisanship wherever we find it, whether it's pizza directly related or or and of course, pizza is the, the big hook that that it, the show is really about. It's the lens through which we look at this deeper story, which is about, you know, what the passions that drive us, the perp, the the um, the quest that everybody is on for a more meaningful, purpose driven life. And so that's really what the show is about. And these folks are great, you know, because and and my goal as the host is just to kind of get deeper into their journey. I want to celebrate, you know, their story because their stories really speak to all of the listeners stories as well, because whether you're a pizza maker or what, everybody is on a journey in some form or another. And we just want to fan the flames of those journeys and encourage people to stay on them and go deeper and deeper into them. Right. And I mean, when you has your vision or your taste or your idea of the best pizza changed over the years? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I started out, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, which is a good food city, very good food city. We had a few excellent pizzerias, but it wasn't known as the pizza center uh, when I was a kid. Uh, that was still New York and New Haven and uh, and a few other Chicago had their own style, you know, but the 
Philly had a good, I call it New York light. You know, we had our, we were like New York, but in a smaller scale uh, in terms of pizzerias. So, but I had a neighborhood pizzeria that I loved and of all the other pizzerias in the, in the area, I thought they made the best pizza. So I decided as a kid that this must be, you know, one of the best pizzas in the world because I loved it so much. It was so good. It's called Mama's Pizzeria. And um, <laughs> so original. Right? Yeah, Mama, yeah, right, right. Uh, what else could it be called? And, and, and so that became my benchmark as a, you know, as a, as a young person who was an unsophisticated food, food lover, but not a real foodie per se. Uh, that was my benchmark of great pizza. So everywhere I went after that, when I went to Boston and had pizza there, I said, yeah, it's pretty good, but it's not as good as mama's and, and on and on. Well, eventually as I got into the food world and deeper into the food world and I had a chance to go to a lot of cities and of course have pizza in a lot of different places, I realized, Hey, wait a minute maybe mama's isn't the best pizza in the world. Maybe there's some places that are even better than mama's. And, <laughs> and so I started to kind of let go of that parochial view that what I thought was best was best and, and really ask myself what is, and if it is, if something is better, what makes it better? And so, yeah, there's uh, uh so my taste changed because then you get to a place like uh, I went to Frank Pepe's uh, Napolitana Pizzeria in New Haven and got the right. white clam pizza, which is their most famous pizza. And I went, oh, my God, there's nothing like this in Philadelphia. Um, there's some great pizza, but nothing like this pizza. And then I went to uh, uh, even up the street, Sally's uh, uh, Pizzeria, which is an offshoot of Frank Pepe's. Uh, and they had a just a, a sauce and cheese pizza that was, again, it set new new uh, benchmarks in my mind. So I kept having to move the bar up and up in my mind. Uh, and everywhere I went, I would find something. And then uh, when I had Chris Bianco's pizza at Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix, it was kind of like it blew the lid off of everyone else. This was, I'm going to say, around 1998 when I first tasted his pizza. He hadn't burst on the scene. He hadn't become famous yet. Um, he was still just a local legend. But um People were telling me, when you go to Phoenix, I had to go for a conference. Make sure you go to Pizzeria Bianca. Well, I actually needed to make bread at that conference. And somebody said, by the way, he also makes the best bread in Phoenix. And he just I think that's when I met you, Peter. That it was, was probably at IACP? that conference. Yeah, yeah. The IACP conference, IACP, right. Yeah. I, was presenting, I was presenting at that conference, right. That's amazing. And I was doing a presentation <laughs> on, you know, on bread, artisan bread. And Chris was making a, a ciabatta-like bread, a, a rustic bread, out of his pizza dough that he serves at the restaurant in a basket. And it was fabulous bread. And it was just, you know, it was from his pizza dough. And which made sense when you when you look back, you go, of course, you know, why wouldn't you make bread out of your pizza dough? So I got to know him. I talked to him. And and as I was walking into that pizzeria uh, for the first time, people were leaving and they were sh shaking their head. They're going, I I didn't know pizza could be that good. You know, that's amazing. I mean, I, I remember and this is what, 30 some years later, yeah. people walking out going, that was amazing. And I said, how could pizza, you know, do this to them? And I went in and had his pizza. He's working with the same ingredients, cheese, sauce, you know, dough. And yet you take that one bite out of that pizza and you went, oh, my God, I didn't know pizza had this other level that it could get to that was so good. And it really started with the crust. The crust Absolutely. was just like unlike any crust I'd ever had before. It was just perfect. It was perfect. And um, and all the people that I was with, and these were uh, food professionals from IACP, International Association of Culinary Professionals. We were all having a meeting around the table, and Chris kept bringing out his pizzas for us to try, and everybody was shaking their heads going, I can't believe this. It was like, and the phrase didn't exist for them, but everybody was in this 
OMG mode, you know? <laughs> oh my God, this is so amazing. <laughs> and so little by little, Chris, of course, became a very well-known celebrity and, you know, got discovered. And, and, um, and, I, and so when I wrote my pizza book, I knew that I was going to have to stop there. And of course, my visit with Chris, for me, turned out to be the, the highlight, the climax of, of American Pie, um, because I got to talk with him. And when, when I was asking him the question, you know, what is it about your pizza that makes it so much better than everybody else's? And first, he's a very humble guy. And he first said, well, I don't know that it's so much better. He said, uh, but what makes it really good? What, what is?" And he started listing the things that he does that, uh, like, well, I make my own, I pull my own mozzarella cheese. Every day I make my, my cheese fresh. And uh, we grow a lot of our own produce. I've got a little vegetable garden. We put the basils all grown here. I have the tomatoes specially brought in uh, from at that time it was Italy. Later on, he switched to California. Um, and but after each thing that he said, he'd say, "But that's not it. That's not what makes it so good." And um, and and, uh, and he says, and of course, I'm the. Uh, you know, um, he, at that point, he was the only one in the pizzeria who ever made the pizzas. He didn't have any staff. He, If mm-hmm. you had his pizza at his place, it was made by Chris Bianco himself. I, so I said, well, if it's none of those things that makes it makes him special, you know, what is it? And he stopped for a minute and he kind of like thought, he got thoughtful and he said, it's because I'm the one who's making them. <laughs> and that yeah. was again an, another aha moment. Uh-huh. There it is. There's, there for himself. There's the key <laughs> to the whole book, right there. He just summed up the whole book. It's and said he said I can teach people my techniques. I can teach them my tricks. I can teach them my knowledge. He says, but I can't teach people to care as much as I care. If somebody came to me who had who cared as much as I cared, I could make them a great pizza maker. Mm-hmm. And I, that's when I knew that was one of the moments that I knew I had a book. I still wasn't sure if I had my whole book in place because I had gone around the country, eaten a lot of pizza, interviewed a lot of people. There were certain trends and certain patterns that were emerging that that were you know key to differentiating. And one of those was you know the fact that there's this person behind it who's making it, who just just has dedicated himself to the craft and the passion of doing it right. So then at the end of the story, uh, at the end of my, my my research travels, I went back to Philadelphia, my hometown, to revisit Mama's Pizzeria, which was had been my first benchmark. And, um, and uh, I went back and my brother, uh, who still lives in Philly, he brought two pizzas and two cheesesteaks from Mama's to my mom's apartment. And we all got around the table and started, you know, uh, getting ready to eat. And uh, I'll backtrack and say that not only did Mamas make the best pizza in my youth, but also they had the best cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. Uh, and they made them differently than everybody else. They were they were just phenomenal. And I would argue, my, my high school friends and I would go and argue because we'd go to different cheesesteak places and we'd argue who had the best cheesesteak. And I'd say, no, it's still Mamas. It's still Mamas. So anyway, he walks in with these two cheesesteaks and two pizzas and I immediately, the, the aromas of those brought back childhood memories because I had been a delivery boy also for a short time for Mamas. And so when my car was filled with their cheesesteaks and hoagies, it left a very indelible food taste memory in my brain. It was in there. <laughs> and when I connected with, the, with that again 30 years later, all those memories came flooding back and I was back in my car delivering pizzas. But so I, I ripped off the butcher paper around the cheesesteak and took one bite of the cheesesteak and the juices are dripping down my chin. And I say to my brother, Fred, these cheesesteaks are even better than I remember them. 
And he just started laughing at me. And he said, yeah, it's too bad you moved away because, uh, you know, we get these all the time. <laughs> I said, yeah, thanks. Uh, and then we opened the pizza. And I, and I took a bite of the pizza. And I said, Fred, these pizzas aren't as good as they used to be. Something's changed. And he goes, no, no, the pizzas are all the same as always. And I said, no, no, there's something different. And he said, well, how do you know? You haven't been here for 30 years. How do you know it's different? Mm-hmm. He said, how do you know it's the pizza that's different and not you? Mm-hmm. And I went, good point. Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe it is me. And that's what I need to write about. Was it me or the pizza that it changed? Right. And so this was this had happened uh, uh, the previous year before I went on the road. Then when I come back at the end, I go back to Mama's and I went over to Mama's and I visited the son of the founder, the, the founder, the guy who who I knew was named Paul. So I called and I says, Paul there. And and uh, this guy said, this is Paul. And I said, no, you're too young to be Paul. And he said, oh, you mean my dad, Paul Sr. He said, he retired 10 years ago. This is Paul Jr. And I said, Paul Jr. He said, the last time I saw you, you were like, <laughs> I don't know, 13 years old. And you were like, you know, working around the grill with your mom. And he goes, yeah. He says, yeah, I'm 43 years old now. <laughs> you know, He says, and I had, I, my, nobody in the family wanted it after my dad retired. So I took it. So I came, I went over, I told him what I was doing. I told him about the book I was writing. And I went over and when I got there, I said, listen, Paul, I got to ask you, have the pizzas changed since, you know, back in the day? And he starts laughing and he says, so you noticed, huh? And I said, they have, haven't they? He says, oh yeah. And first of all, first thing I'm thinking is, can't wait to go back and tell my brother that I was right and he was wrong. But <laughs> but uh, also, you know, I said, well, well, what happened? He says, well, look, when my dad was here, you know, he had a very tricky dough that he, only he seemed to be able to handle that dough really well. And he said when he retired, he tried to teach people how to, how to handle the dough, but nobody picked it up. So he changed the recipe and he kind of dumbed it down a little bit and he made it much simpler to handle, less water and, you know, much easier. And 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 the pizzas have never been the same ever since then. He says, but I don't care. And I said, well, how could you not care? You guys had like the best pizza in the area. How could you not care? And he says, because number one, I don't love pizza the way everybody else does. I love cheesesteaks. Cheesesteaks are my passion and not pizza. That was my dad's passion. I always hung around with my mom at the grill, learning how to make cheesesteaks and hoagies. That's what I love to do. And and back when my dad was here, 80% of our business was pizza and 20% of our business was cheesesteaks and hoagies. And now... 80% of our business is cheesesteaks and 20, 20% of our business is pizzas and we're making more money than ever. And, uh, you know, and I'm doing what I love to do. So you were right. It's all about the crust. Yeah, but well, but, the crust. yeah, it was. And and then <laughs> yeah. when I asked him, well, what is it about your cheesesteak that makes them so great? Because even David Rosengarten, the great food writer of New York City, had written, a, then I sent out a whole newsletter on cheesesteaks and he had surveyed Philadelphia and went to some, and he, at the end of the newsletter, he said, but if you really want the best cheesesteak in the world, forget about Pat's and Gino's and all the touristy places. Go to this place on City Line Avenue, and it was on Belmont Avenue, uh, just over the city line, called Mama's Pizzeria. Don't get the pizza, get the cheesesteaks. <laughs> it will change your life. And and I told him that. And I said, did you know David Rosengarten said you made the best cheesesteaks in the world? And he said, no, I had no idea. He says, I, I never read things like that. I have no life. I'm making cheesesteaks all the time. You know? <laughs> but <laughs> I told him and he said, thanks. I said, so what is it? And he said, well... You know, we use a different cut of meat. We use uh, ribeye. And I said, well, that, that's a difference maker. Uh, instead of most people use top round. Uh, he said, uh, we have the rolls made special for us. 
Um, it's, it's our recipe. We don't bake them, but we have a made for us. Nobody else has these rolls. And I think they're better than the Amoroso rolls that everybody else is using. And I said, well, yeah, they are really great rolls. Um, he said, but that's not it. He says, we use our pizza cheese blend, uh, which is a blend of mozzarella, a little bit of, uh, of some Parmesan and a little bit of cheddar. That was their secret ingredient, cheddar cheese, which I always thought was pretty cool. You use that on the cheese steaks. Nobody, everybody else uses, you know, either American cheese or cheese whiz, you know. And um, he said, but, you know, that's not it. I said, well, what is it? And he says, it's because I'm the one who's making them. And I went, where have I heard that before? That's right. And then, that's and that was the moment that I knew I had a book. I said, that is it. That brings it all full circle. And now I know what I'm going to write about. Of course, it's and that not, became and American not just pie. pizza. Got yeah, and then American pie uh, over time uh, morphed into Pizza Quest. Uh, my my partners in this, they came up with the idea and called me these producers. They were producers in L.A. who um, just were also foodies. And they wanted to do a, a, a TV show based on American pie. But they wanted to keep the story going because since the book came out, dozens and dozens of great pizzerias had opened up who were all learning the same craft of of pizza making that Chris Bianco knew. First of all, they all understood that it starts with the dough and the crust. And so they were studying um, the the things that the American bread making movement, the artisan bread making community had been learning from these bread masters. And that was sort of another breakthrough for pizza makers. And before you knew it, there's like, you know, hundreds of destination pizzerias now in America, not just, you know, 10 or 15 that I'd written about in the book. Yeah, but the, I mean, the best always stand out because of someone back there who has the passion. Got to have the passion. Yeah, you can't, and you can't get the execution of this great crust and the great, if you don't have the passion and if you aren't committed to the craft. So one of the great pizza makers that we've interviewed is a guy named Tony Gemignani. He's kind of the biggest rock star in pizza. Chris Bianco is kind of like the, uh, what do you call the, the spiritual father of the, of the Mm -hmm. pizza maker. He's the guy, he's the the guru, but Chris, but uh, Tony Gemignani is this, you know, multi-talented Mozart of pizza. He can make any style of pizza. His pizzerias in San Francisco and in Las Vegas are destination pizzerias. Every style he makes is great. He's won world championships and everything else. And he just opened in New York. And he just, uh, did he again? Yeah, Yeah, he he tried that before. He had to close, but I think he's opened again. I'm not sure. I'm glad to hear that because Tony is, he is this, this, he is like the way Mozart was to music. He was, he stood up, he stands above everybody else in terms of pure talent and, and, and energy. And, and what I, one thing I love is that on his box, uh, when you ask him, you know, what is it about you know, your, your abilities that make you stand out. He says, because I'm dedicated to the craft. And so he's printed on every pizza box that he has is respect the craft. And mm. that phrase, respect the craft has become a catchphrase, you know, for, for all pizza makers now. And it, of course it can apply to any field, but it's all about understanding the craft. So you bring together these elements of, of craft, passion, you know, paying your dues, you know, to get there, you you don't just wake up and suddenly you can make a great pizza. You have right. to put in the time, the 10,000 right. hours or whatever it is that a Malcolm Gladwell talks about. But um, when those things all come together, then you can create something that is so good that people obsess about it. That's right. And they and they and they can't wait to come back and they can't wait to bring their friends and their family because it's that good. Um, and we did Thank a, goodness uh, we have uh, some passionate eaters because, you know, someone's got to appreciate the craft, right? Well, that's it. <laughs> got to have know, a lot and, of passion. And, and, one and of the first things I do. First that's the thing quest we're all on is, is, is eating That's right. Food. That's right. And I and I love this journey you're on. And I, if, if you have, for my listeners, if you're not hooked already, you got to tune in to Peter Reinhardt's 
Pizza Quest, A Journey of Self-Discovery Through Pizza. He has got stories of his own, but he manages to get great stories out of the people he interviews, mm-hmm. whether it's a pizzaiolo or, as, as you said, uh, one of the people who, you know, are one of the producers of the other ingredients that go on a pizza. If I could throw in one more quick plug, if you wouldn't mind, um, and that is that um, if, if you go, if the listeners would go to my website, pizzaquest.com, one word, pizzaquest.com, and at the top of the homepage, one of the, the very first video you will see is one that we always leave at the top of the page, and it's called Pizza as Obsession. It's kind of like a, a, a highlight reel of some of the different people that we visited with during the first season. And uh, and we call it Pizza as Obsession because I was talking about this obsessive drive that people have, you know, for, for making great pizza. And you'll see all – and everyone we interviewed, independently of each other, almost everyone uh, at some point in, in, or another in the conversation would go – I'm just so obsessed with pizza. And so there's something about pizza that brings out this obsessiveness in us. And I think that's why pizza has so much traction these days. Yeah, perfect pizza. Well, you've made me hungry. So I I don't have any pizza and I didn't put any rise. Hmm. All right. I'm going to have to find something that will give me that same satisfaction as as, as the good pizza. I'm hoping that as soon as somebody listens to our show, that they'll run out and, and support a local, one of your great local artists and pizza makers. There you go. Right. Absolutely. So, Peter, thank you so much. It's it's a pleasure to learn from you and hear your stories. And I look forward to listening to a lot more good stories and interviews on Pizza Quest here on Heritage Radio Network or where you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. But it is brought to you by Heritage Radio Network. And I like to thank my sponsor, Gustiamo, for for sponsoring this episode of A Taste of the Past. And I hope we have an opportunity to to join up in real life soon, Peter. Well, hopefully. Listen, if any of you want to get together, uh, it's a crazy time to, to be there. But in August, the, the, they're bringing back the Pizza Expo. It got shut down for a year, you know, the COVID oh. shutdowns. But they're coming back. They usually have it in March, which is much more sensible for Vegas. But they couldn't get, you know, the, the hall back until uh, until August. So right, right, in right. mid-August, they're having a big Pizza Expo, 10,000 pizza freaks from all over the world converge in Las Vegas for three days of pizza madness and i'll be there and if any of you happen to uh, be there come up and, and tell me you heard heard, heard about it you know on the show <laughs> all right great well it's been a pleasure thank you so much and best of luck to you on everything and to you as well thanks so much linda. all right and thanks for listening to a taste of the past i'm your host linda palaccio and this has been another taste a great taste a taste of pizza thanks a taste of the past is powered by simplecast Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.